Hey, and welcome to Budgeting Redefined, a podcast. I am Drew Adams. I'm Dan Seataller. And we are the co-founders of Weekly, an app that helps you stick to a budget by making it simple to understand what you have to spend. This week, we dive into the psychology of sunk costs. Then we will jump into a conversation about how sometimes spending is experimental and what that means for you. And finally, we talk to Chris Chapman, who is the host of his own podcast, Next Level Minds, and he gives us his personal financial story. Stick around. It's going to be a good one. To begin this week, I wanted you to share the story you wanted to tell about the thing that you bought that uh, you had to repair. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even... So, I, I'm i surprised you don't know what a go-ped or a moped is. And oh, it makes me oh. wonder... A moped. A moped. Maybe yeah. it's a regional thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. From Utah, well, when I was growing up, that was a thing. Like, my brother had one. I bought one. Um, a lot, lots of people had them and, and I don't know actually the terminology, but this was like a scooter that you stand on, right? There's no seat. Mm -hmm. And so, um, my friend and I looked at these scooters online, they were like $300 and I really wanted one and he wanted one. And then one day I think he like bought one and I was like, Oh crap, I'm going to buy one. So then I bought it and they had to be shipped from China or something. Right. So it was like a multiple weeks before they arrived. And finally showed up like this, this, uh, cardboard box on the front door. And I was like, I know what that is. So I was excited. I got it out, put it all together and, uh, started scooting around. And it was kind of this funny thing where it's like not really legal, but not really illegal to like ride it on the road, you know? <laughs> so anyway, um, after I had it for a couple of days, I was coming home from my friend's house, the same friend. And I was going up a hill uh, just on the sidewalk, actually, because it was a busier, it was a bigger road. So I was definitely not going to be on the road. I was going up on the sidewalk. And to my left was a cement wall. And about every three feet was the cement posts that poked out like a few inches, right? And so um, <laughs> I'm actually remembering some details now. So on the back of my scooter, I had like a half gallon gas tank that I had um, bungee corded on and it would kind of slip off once in a while. And so, so here I am like driving up this hill. I don't know how fast I was going. How old, 15 how miles old were you? An hour maybe. How old were you? I was in high school. Okay. I was probably a junior or something. So I'm going up the hill. I glance back at the gas tank to make sure that it's not slipping off. And then I look up and I've kind of like, gotten off track a little bit so i swerve and in swerving the back side of the go-ped where the engine is gets far enough to my left to clip one of the posts and it just rips the um the the cable what's that called the like the pull cable to start it, it rips it right off and the engine was still running and i stopped and i was just kind of dazed and didn't know what happened um, and so I turned off the engine and I figured out that like this piece had ripped off and I immediately thought like, crap, like now I can't start the engine. I'm like a mile away from my house on a busy road. And now I just have to push this thing home. So 
I did. I, I like pushed it up this hill and, you know, it was like, I know I'm passing all my neighbor's house and they're driving by and I'm just like pushing this new go-ped that I purchased. <laughs> so got back to my house. It was like pretty disappointing. Um, so I was looking online if there was like a, re- like something I could do to repair this. And there was an $80 part I could buy that was just the, that starter cable and the housing. Okay, so the thing hope- the thing costs three hundred, right? And the repair piece costs eighty dollars. Exactly. Okay, go on. So I was like, all right, well, I'm three hundred dollars into this thing. Like another eighty dollars could get me up and running. So, you know, I'll I'll give it a try. I'm not super handy, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. So, <clears throat> so I purchased the repair piece. I don't remember how long it took to come, to come, but I'm sure it was a while. And then. Um, brought it out to the garage and it did not fit at all. Like the, the places where it got screwed on were just like ripped off. There were still like three out of the four that were still there. And I was hoping that would kind of work, but it just didn't. Right. Like it was kind of mangled and I couldn't get the piece on and it just, it just didn't happen. And so then I ended up with like this brand new $80 part that was worthless and a scooter that was also worthless. (laughs) So like good money after bad. Yeah. Is that what you felt like? Yeah. And there was like a few, a few thoughts that like came to me as I was thinking about this story in particular, there's the sunk cost thing that we'll kind of go into a little bit more. Um, But there's also the idea that some of our spending is a little bit experimental. Like sometimes when we buy things, we don't know if we're going to like it or if we're not and how it's going to work out. And so there was kind of two takeaways for me on that thought one was to try to think about what your experience will be like after you buy something right so let's say in fact we were at costco the other day thinking about buying something and i thought like a week it was probably something some kitchen appliance or something and i thought to myself like a week from now am i going to be using this right is this going to be part of like my daily makeup and a really valuable thing or not Um, or is it just something that's like, Oh, that might be cool. Let's try it out. Right. And so having the, or thinking ahead and knowing that sometimes our spirit, our spending is experimental and trying to have that experimental experience just mentally Mm -hmm. can save us the money. Um, and then in other times, like we buy something and in short order, it's like used up its usefulness to us. Like maybe that scooter was like really fun, but it very quickly became like totally useful. Um, And I think at at that time, like we have to be okay to let go of things. And I would have been better off if I had let go of that before I bought the $80 long part that didn't work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So much to go into there. So I want to talk about both of those things. Let's dive a little deeper on the sunk cost piece. Cause it sounds like if you could do it over again and talk to yourself way back then, you would say, Hey, Dan, look at this. There's no way that this thing is going to be attached right here. Yep. Let it go. Let yeah. it go, right? And you wouldn't have put the extra $80 into the thing, right? Um, exactly. So um, I was thinking of this as sunk cost and how and when we decide to continue investing in something or not and how we can and why we feel compelled sometimes to continue investing in what has already cost us money. 
So um, I was reading this paper on the psychology of sunken costs, and here's how it begins. Um, A man, uh, they give an example of a sunk cost scenario. A man wins a contest sponsored by a local radio station. By the way, FYI, this, this was written in 1985. So some of the costs and some of the things they talk about are actually already dated. But anyway, um, a man wins a contest sponsored by a local radio station. He is given a free ticket to a football game. Since he does not want to go alone, he persuades a friend to buy a ticket to go with him. As they prepare to go to the game, a terrible blizzard begins. The contest winner peers out his window over the Arctic scene and announces that he is not going because the pain of enduring the snowstorm would be greater than the enjoyment he would derive from watching the game. However, his friend protests. I don't want to waste the $12 I paid for a ticket. I want to go. The friend who purchased the ticket is not behaving rationally according to the traditional economic theory. Only incremental costs should influence decisions, not sunk costs. If the agony of sitting in a blinding snowstorm for three hours is greater than the enjoyment one would derive from trying to see the game, then one should not go. The $12 has been paid whether one goes or not. It is a sunk cost, right? Yes. So Exactly. I can I can feel that. I know that I've kind of been in situations where I've put money into something. I was like, well, I've already paid for it. Well, let's just go. Like We yeah. got to do it even though it really is lost its purpose. And it makes me wonder how you can get around the sunk cost problem. Um, one... Uh, way that comes to mind is to think about why you're buying something up front and yep. if it's no longer filling that need then let it go right yeah. um and but it's hard to know when those moments in time you should stop and just not do something yeah yeah so you're saying like once you purchase something thinking back to the original purpose for which it was purposed or which it was purposed and if um that's not valid anymore then maybe you should just let go of it right and i think that the second piece of that kind of like i brought up is thinking of something in advance like like that football game i don't know how much you could do you know i guess you could look at the weather uh depending on how far out it was to see if like the weather's going to be good enough uh but other things that you can do to try to eliminate purchasing something that you then are kind of stuck with in a situation that doesn't serve you in this paper, there was a second example experiment that they did on students to see if they could influence their behaviors or their choices based off of sunk costs. And I wanted to run this one by you because I thought it was interesting. And I wanted to capture your thoughts on it because it's tricky when you think about sunk costs. So this is actually sunk costs in dealing with the business. Are mm. you, re- you ready for this? Yep. So, as the owner of a printing company, you must choose whether to modernize your operation by spending $200,000 on a new printing press or on a fleet of new delivery trucks. You choose to buy the trucks, which can deliver your products twice as fast as the old trucks at about the same cost as the old trucks. One week after you purchase the new trucks, one of your competitors goes bankrupt. To get some cash in a hurry, he offers to sell you his computerized printing press for $10,000. This press works 50% faster than your old press at one half the cost, you know you will not be able to sell your old press to raise the money since it was built specifically for your needs and cannot be modified. However, you do have $10,000 in savings. The question is, should you buy the computerized press from your bankrupt competitor? 
Wait, so I, I'm missing the dilemma there. That seems like a definite yes. Just go with it. So okay, yeah, yes. Yes, okay, yeah, cool. For sure. All right, here's question. Give, here was the question given to another set of people, all right? Mm-hmm. As the owner of a printing company, you must choose whether to modernize your operation by spending $200,000 on a new printing press or on a fleet of new delivery trucks. That's the same. You mm-hmm. choose to buy the press, which is different, which works twice as fast as your old press, but about the same cost as the old press. One week after you purchase the new press, one of your competitors goes bankrupt. To get some cash in a hurry, he offers to sell you his computerized printing press for $10,000. So you just paid $200,000. Now you have this opportunity to get $10,000 from your competitor. Mm-hmm. This press, the competitor's press, works 50% faster than your new press at about one half the cost. Your, yeah. You know you will not be able to sell your new press, the one that they bought for $200,000, to yep. raise this money since it was built specifically for your needs and cannot be modified. However, you do have $10,000 in savings. The question is, should you buy the computerized press from your bankrupt competitor? Do you, <laughs> yeah do you get it so, yeah i get it on that one yeah that's like the sunk cost right Two hundred thousand in spend ten thousand dollars more and i think part of the question there is what like how long it, it's going to cost him less right so there's kind of a, a question of how long it'll take to pay off but if you just pay two hundred thousand dollars and you can get something that's even twice as fast and half the price seems like a good move well, it's, it's, he has to spend the $10,000 on top of the 200000 So in right, scenario A, right. he paid $200,000 to buy some trucks. And then he could pay $10,000 to modernize his press. And like the world is good, right? But in yeah. scenario B, he, he spent $200,000 to already buy a press, mm-hmm. could spend an additional 10000 by buying the competitor's press and get double the production of the $200,000 press. So the scenario would be he it's it's worth it to spend ten thousand dollars and double the in both scenarios yep. it's worth to spend ten thousand dollars to right. double the production of your press yeah but in one case you've already spent two hundred thousand dollars on the press and the other one you haven't yep. so in this <laughs> does that make sense it does um so i think i think that's a good example because it's like obvious that it'll be better for the business and sometimes it's less obvious in personal situations like the story about the football game yeah right yeah so because because sometimes we like the the challenge there is like your emotion like you paid for this and you want to like go have that experience and your experience can't be quantified right like how painful it is versus like how happy it makes you right so you have to you got to make that call but if you understand the the principle then you can apply it right and in the second case where you're dealing with the press um the two scenarios i gave you in the first one you was like this is a no-brainer why is this even we're talking about this but in the experiment um 23 of the percent of the people actually said no don't spend ten thousand dollars to buy the printing press really? double yeah which is weird so but the other i guess is 77 percent said yes the you yeah. know rational choice yeah but in question B, where everything was kind of flipped around or the sunk cost mm-hmm. was already sort of into the equation, so you're replacing something you already bought for $200,000 with 10000 extra, but you're still doubling the production quality, uh, production speed of it. Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, 46% of the people said you should not buy that extra press. So almost <laughs> doubled the number of people that's, who that's said no. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
I'm surprised that first number was so high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes me wonder, what are these people thinking? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who was surveyed here? What, who was the survey? Was it for college students? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. I think it was yeah. college students who ended up yeah. who were doing it. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, why do you think it is that we continue to throw good money after bad? Well, I think I think it is hard sometimes. Like, I think it's almost easier to behave more rationally when we're talking about business because, like ultimately it boils down to the bottom line right but some well, i think we're not as good at managing our own wellness and and kind of um quantifying an experience and then making a decision based off of the results you know what i mean mm-hmm. this paper goes on to say something that i feel like uh, i agree with which is one reason that people throw good money after bad is that stopping investing in something would sometimes constitute an admission that the previous thing was wasted. Mm, You have to sort of accept that the time or the money you put in that thing was wrong and you, and that's painful, right? It's painful to say, yep, I was wrong about that, but we should let it go. I assume. Right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's a great point. That is hard to accept something was like, didn't get the value you wanted it to, especially when you spent money on it already. Uh, what was the other thing that you brought up that you were learning from, from the Costco thing? Yeah. So kind of like the concept that we talked about Marie Kondo before um, she mentions that, that things can reach the end of their usefulness. And at that point we should let them go. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, kind of another angle or another take on this is that, uh, um, for example, I get a lot of shirts from my work as a software engineer, like at all the companies I've worked at, they're just like giving out t-shirts all the time. Right. And most of the time I get a large because a large fits me pretty well when it's brand new and an extra large, uh, typically depending on like how, how they make them, but they're typically just wider. Maybe a little longer, but they're always wider. And I'm like a thin, tall guy. And so that doesn't work well for me. And so what I have realized is that when I get a shirt from work, it is, it's like awesome. It's new and it's like, you know, whatever I'm working on, it's cool. It's fresh. And I wear it a couple of times and I don't dry it. I just like hang dry it right to try to keep the shape. But I know after about like two or three washes, it's just not going to fit well anymore. Mm-hmm. And that if I had if I was buying a shirt, I would want a longer return on investment. Right. Mm. So I'd hope to not buy shirts that have that problem. But shirts that I get for free. Um, so this is kind of mixing ideas here. Yeah. But shirts that I get for free, like it's easier for me to say, like, OK, I know this is going to be about like three or four wears, a few washes. And then, like, I'm just going to have to you know, donate it or something. It's, it's not going to fit me and I'm not, I'm no longer going to get value out of it. Whereas in the past, I feel like, I feel like I can't get rid of the shirt. Like I've only worn it a few times, yeah. you know? And it's like, how could I just like, let go of that? Uh-huh. And even in that first example of shirts that you buy, 
Mm-hmm. Um, if it, let's say that shirt costs you $25, let's say you pay yeah, $65 yeah. for that shirt. Yep. And after three or four washes, you were like, this shirt is not going to work for me anymore. Yep. Would you keep yeah. trying to wear it because you had spent $65 on it? Yeah. I think I have made that mistake before. That's a great point. It's like, so there's two, there's two things I think about that. One is like, definitely you should follow the same principle, right? If it doesn't continue to support you and, and bring you happiness, then you should let go of it. And the second thing is you should, even though it's a sunk cost, you should learn from it, right? Like don't buy that same shirt from that same company again, because like $65 is not worth, you know, three or four wears on a shirt. Yeah. Most likely Um, for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for a person that seems reasonable, that's kind of high. I'm trying to think of a way that that, how that would not be. Yeah, 65 bucks for a shirt. I mean, you want that shirt to last a while. Here's another mistake that that we can make in our families, I I believe, is when we buy something for someone else and then it doesn't get the amount of usefulness from them that we wanted Mm -hmm. it. Like, let's say we had this intention for it to be this great thing that they used a lot and then they don't. And then you're like resentful. Hey, why aren't you using the da 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 I bought you? You're like, well, it's not that fun. You know, maybe they're thinking or it's just not a great fit or it's itchy or whatever. But then the, and I'm thinking kids in particular might feel pressure to go ahead and use this thing that they, if they were honest with themselves, they just don't enjoy. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that's important as parents, but also as anyone giving a gift to try to be hands off in that way, right? Like, when you give somebody a gift, you should want them to enjoy it. And if they don't enjoy it, then you shouldn't want them to use it anyway <laughs> to make you feel better. Right. Right. And, and that's hard. But I think that we have a culture that's just really like use it up, wear it out, you know, make it do. And I think that could work for some things. But we also yeah. like things have changed where there is so much um, flowing into our lives in terms of products, right? Yeah. Getting free shirts at work, getting handouts, you know, the kids go to school and come home with new stuff and field trips and trips. And there's just, you just accumulate all this stuff. And I think that's really our greater challenge in the world today is, is how to let go. Interesting. There was one other point that she said earlier about your experience at Costco. Could you run through that one more time? Yeah, so Costco, I was talking about um, uh, the second piece. Like, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like the appliance. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, oh, right, right, right. Yeah, so the thought was uh, when we we're looking at something at Costco, Costco's got cool stuff and they, they keep it fresh and circulate new things all the time. And so sometimes there's things that catch your eye that's, that's like, oh, that's cool. I haven't seen that before. That would be interesting to try it out. Um, but if it's something that you're just not going to use on a consistent basis in the kitchen, it probably isn't worth the money, right? Let's say it's an $80 appliance, a juicer, for example. And like, you might get a few experiences where you buy vegetables and you juice them and it's good. And like, you have that experience, but then you have this product that's kind of bulky and heavy. It costs you $80 that's in your cupboard that like it's a pain to clean can you tell i'm speaking from some personal experience here (laughs) i'm feeling like there was a juicer that was left at costco last week (laughs) well this 
I'm kind of mixing stories now, but I, I did buy a juicer. Uh, my wife and I did like early in our marriage and we probably used it more than most people that use a juicer or that buy a juicer, use it. Um, but even still, like, um, I think if we just bought fresh juice, it would have cost us less than the cost of the vegetables and the cost of the juicer. Right. And so sometimes like that's a little bit of a different thought is rather than buying the appliance and thinking like, think of how much I'll save over time with like juicing vegetables, right? Just buy the juice directly and, and enjoy it and then move on because unless that's like really your thing that you do that consistently. Um, if you're like most people, you use it a few times and and then you just won't anymore. Yeah. And that can put you in a, in a, in a spot. So if, so anyway, back to the original point you were trying to draw out of me. Um, if you kind of think ahead towards the the lifespan of something and how you could see something integrating into your life, uh, that may be helpful. Or even if you could borrow, in this case, a juicer and try it out and, and see if that's something that you would use on a consistent basis uh, can be a great way to save money and also save yourself the the headache and stress of having to deal with a product that no longer brings value to you. So one other thing I wanted to touch on was the idea of buying something as an experiment and knowing that it's an experiment and therefore freeing yourself from it having any usefulness whatsoever. So, <laughs> right? So it's like yep. you do this thought experiment and you're like, okay, let me decide if I'm this juicer, if I'm going to use it or not in the future so I can kind of limit my you know urge to buy it now yeah or the opposite way is saying this could be useful or not be useful i'm going to chalk this up to experiment so i don't feel mm -hmm. any need to get the 80 dollars of value out of it or bad if it doesn't get there and therefore bad if it doesn't provide that value yeah i and like that then you just do it it's like yeah this sucks let's move on and you just keep going <laughs> right yeah, I think, what if you even added to that and said, like, think about a, a next strategy, right? Like, if oh, this yeah. doesn't work, I could give it to my sister who's really, like, would find that useful. Or I could donate it, or I could gift it, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, that might even help be, like, just kind of solidify in your mind, like, this might not work out, but I'm buying it anyway. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah, I like that. I think that's that's a good idea. Coming up next, we have uh, have a talk that I did with Chris Chapman. This is a fun talk. You know, Chris has uh, got his own podcast, um, which he calls Next Level Minds. And he interviews, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and business people about productivity and how to get the uh, most out of your, your work and, and their backstories and things like that. He also has a really interesting definition for wealth. But this this uh, talk with Chris is from the perspective of someone who's basically just left college, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you're you're a little bit beyond that, right? I mean, you have a house, yeah, and yeah. you know, I think you're past thirty. You're past thirty, right? Yeah, just yeah, barely. Just barely, yeah. So, um, but this is from the perspective of just coming out um, and you know hitting the ground and trying to figure it out. And I think he's got he's got a lot going for him. So, uh, stay tuned next for our uh, talk with Chris Chapman. This episode is brought to you by Weekly. Our app that helps you stick to a budget. It's in the Apple iOS app store. You can also find us at weeklybudgeting.com. 
we have a completely different take on budgeting. The traditional method is to operate on a month, to put everything into categories and subtract the money out of categories. But this ends in frustration for lots of people because they get halfway through the month. They may have overspent or underspent a category. They're not sure where to grab the money from. Oh, by the way, does this sound familiar? Hey, honey, where's the target receipt? I'm trying to figure out if that is a household expense or a food expense. It's just a disaster. So then you end up at the end of the month. You're not sure what happened and you just give up. So we've come up with a different way, which is to operate on a weekly basis. We take your recurring income, your recurring expenses, we subtract your expenses from your income, and then we come up with what you can safely spend for a week. Then we keep you in touch with that number, downloading your transactions from the bank so that you can always know what is safe to spend. This alleviates the guilt of spending and lets you spend with more joy. So we hope you give the app a try. Um, you can go to weeklybudgeting.com, click on the icon, go to the app store. You can also search in the app store for weekly budget or weekly budgeting. Right now we're at the top of the organic rankings for that and give it a try. Let us know what you think and welcome to the podcast and welcome to the weekly community. So I am here with Chris Chapman. We are in the kind of the shadows of downtown Charlotte. Uh, we met at a FinTech conference here in Charlotte. And we started talking about personal finance and weekly and the app and all of that. And we decided to get together to have a chat. So thanks for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to be here. And I think what's really interesting about how we even got connected is when I went to that conference, literally three days before I wrote in my uh, gratitude journal that I go with every morning, I wrote, I will be on a podcast uh, in a month from now, I'll be asked to be on a podcast. There you go. And literally three days later, go to the event, run into you. And then all of a sudden here we are a couple months later. So what's great is we have interest in FinTech in common, but also we're of different generations. You're of a younger generation. You're really interested in money. I'm a, I'm a little bit older. I'm 40, I'm 48. Um, right now getting on uh, anyway, but you are, how old are you? How old are you? Uh, 24, 24. And you're the executive director of Capital Analytics here in Charlotte and also a podcaster yourself. You do uh, Next Level Minds plug. Go check, check that out if you uh, are interested. But um, so I'm interested, though, in your perspective on money. So one of my first questions is um, you're just a couple of years removed from college. Um, what is what has been your personal journey with with managing money? Up to this point? Yeah, that's a really good question. So obviously, I think managing money comes in a lot of different phases. Some people started at a young age. Some people started in college. Some people started after college. Every circumstance is different. And when did yours start? So for me, I really started, you know, I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, um, kind of a middle class family, you know, never really had to stress about a roof not being over my head. But you know, at a young age, starting around 11, 12 years old, I kind of realized that I started to, you know, have to pay for some of my own um, hobbies, things I like doing. You How know, young? Uh, about 12. Okay. So, you know, obviously I didn't have to pay for my own groceries, but, you know, if I wanted to go buy a new skateboard or surfboard or surfing camp, you know, that was really on my dollar. So how do you make money when you're 11 Yeah, so old? it really all started from there. And, you know, 11, 12 years old, and, you know, obviously you can't go get a, a W-2 job right. or anything. So my thing was, is I was like, okay, 
you know, I cut my parents' grass for free just to help out around the house. I, I think I'm pretty dang good at it. So, you know what? I'm going to make these flyers. At the time, it was on uh, was Microsoft Word Art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember when that was really big before oh, yeah. Adobe and all that. Uh, so I made these flyers and, you know, just knocked door to door asking if I could cut their grass. What I did was actually a little bit of market research prior and said, okay, this guy cuts it for 40 they're actually established firm. I'm going to come in $20, take the business on the low end. Uh-huh. Uh, so, you know, I'd be knocking on doors and it got to a point where I was doing that at 12 years old, you know, 20 bucks a yard, five yards, you know, making a decent amount of money at that age uh, to start doing what I wanted. So that was kind of the initial phase of really learning what it's like to make money. Yeah. Um, did you save that money or did you spend it all when you were that age? Yeah. So at first I, you know, just like a typical kid would go spend it on, uh, you know, fast food or the movies. And then I started realizing like, okay, I'm working pretty hard for this, but you know, I, and my money's staying the same, you know, I'm working really hard, but, uh, this little, you know, bag that I had, I had a Ziploc bag. It, it's empty every <laughs> weekend. So I'm like, why am I working this hard, but not having any money? So what I actually did at the time was I, wrote down on a, uh, you know, about a computer paper size thing about this big. And, uh, I wrote down, you know, my income, which was probably around, you know, $200, $300 a weekend, mm. uh, just from cutting the grass. And then I, uh, I would write down all like my potential expenses, like, okay, movies, uh, you know, going out to eat here, paying for a burger here, maybe buying, uh, you know, a new, uh, used to like some surfing brand. So, you know, maybe buying an O'Neill shirt or something. Uh-huh. And then I started to actually save, you know, I want to save $50 this week, a hundred dollars. And it kind of kept co- compounding on each other. Okay. Um, your first budget. Yeah. First budget. Uh-huh. So it really all started from there. Um, and it was, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, obviously being in the industry, once you kind of see your money grow a little bit, it, it kind of becomes addicting in a sense, you know? Yeah. So fast forward from there, um, you know, you reach high school and growing up in Charleston, which for those of you that are familiar with that area, uh, it's definitely a area where there is a significant amount of wealth. But as I just touched on prior, you know, I was growing up kind of the typical middle class. Um, and it came to a point where a lot of my friends and colleagues were, you know, getting their first cars. Yeah. Um, you know, they were fortunate to have them given to them by their parents um, and at my time, I was like, okay, I don't think this is going to be provided by my parents. So what can I do to get a car? Because I don't want to be that weird kid without a car, you know? Yeah. Um, so my, my standpoint was I was 16 years old and I was like, okay, here's a big savings goal I have. I want to get five grand for my first car. Okay. Um, which at five grand, I mean, even at 24, I think is okay, a decent amount of money. Yeah. Uh, five grand at 16 felt like six figures. <laughs> um, so really what I did, I, you know, I applied at Harris Teeter, uh, went in, obviously had an interview. They asked why I wanted the job and I said, I'm trying to save up for my first car, get some experience. Okay. So, so how much does Harris Teeter pay? Uh, yeah, good question. Let's do the math on this. Uh, Harris Teeter <laughs> paid, uh, Let's see. Oh, they started me at seven twenty five, and then actually stayed there the whole time. I don't think I ever got a raise. So. All right, let's assume there's no taxes. Yeah. All right, that's uh six hundred and eighty nine hours to f- save five thousand dollars. Yep. And you did you did you do it? Uh, so yeah, what I did obviously I was in school at the time, so I couldn't work, uh, and I was part time, so you could and under 18. So you couldn't work more than I believe it was 20 hours a week. Yeah. Uh, so 34 weeks. Yeah. So what I did was do the, um, the typical 20 hour weeks. And then I would still cut the grass on the side, Mm. uh, on the weekends. I wouldn't do too many yards. I maybe do two, three or four max. Mm -hmm. Um, and then ultimately after working for about six months, 
um, I was able to save up the uh, investment that I needed to uh-huh. get my first car. How did it feel? Oh, man, it felt great. Uh, 1999 bright red Nissan Pathfinder. Did you buy it yourself or did your parents get involved? I yeah, so I assume my, they had to be involved. My parents got involved to find it on Craigslist, and they actually – I wasn't quite there at the 5000 I think I had about 3500 Oh. Um, and fortunately, they were like – as a surprise, they were like, hey, we've actually been saving up as well to help you, Oh, um, which nice. was amazing. So yeah. they were uh, – they were very involved in that process and, you know, it felt, uh, it felt good, but it felt scary of, you know, wow, this is all my money going mm-hmm. down the drain in this car. But obviously, you know, I got my goal and that was like kind of the first time where I was like, okay, this is what money can do, you know? Right. And how'd the car turn out just as a footnote? Yeah. So the car was all right for about six to eight months and then, uh, it slowly started dwindling down and ultimately yeah. gave out. So, Did you end up selling it? Uh, sold it for parts for like two grand and then just got a Ford Explorer out the, after that. So, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, let's talk about the next huge yeah. decision, which would be college. Mm-hmm. So student loans are a huge deal for many people. So when you were thinking about college and did you have to get student loans to be able to go to college yeah so i spent my first year of school at um the college of charleston uh in obviously in charleston and uh, i was local there in state so i was able to get um just some in-state help where i actually only had to pay a couple grand which wasn't bad at all that's great um and then after my first year at college of charleston i uh transferred over to clemson university okay uh Go Tigers for those out there that are fans. Um, and ended up uh, sophomore year still having an in-state scholarship just from having the appropriate GPA, mm-hmm. um, which even really wasn't that high. It was like barely a 3-0, mm-hmm. um, but you were in-state, so they were trying to help you out. Yeah. Um, so ended up having to get some student loans um, in my name. Um, ultimately, because of all the scholarships, I uh, ended up graduating Clemson uh, with about, I want to say, 13 in student loan debt and now i'm at at about 10 so yeah that's a very um seems like a modest number considering some of the numbers that i've heard around yeah and and like my thing with that is i think i think for those out there that obviously are making that college decision and and have to get student loans i think it's kind of auditing yourself and if you're looking at out-of-state schools unless they have that one program that an in-state school doesn't i think a sacrifice may have to be made in order to save you know, because out-of-state tuition can be forty-five to sixty thousand dollars, yeah. and if you're having to get that in student loans, only have a couple of scholarships, I think five, ten years after you graduate, you're really going to start looking back and and maybe regretting that decision just mm. from the uh, amount of debt you would be in. So, so did you give it a lot of thought on borrowing that money, or was it kind of a no-brainer? Yeah, so it was. Uh, you know, it got it got kind of scrappy where you know my parents were they were really had a huge initiative of wanting to pay for my school just because they really valued it. Um, but you know, they couldn't really pay for it all up front just from their situation. Um, and they were like, you know, is there any way you can help out? And at the time I was working all summer prior to college to save up as much as I could to actually have spending money, you know, Mm -hmm. going out with friends, paying for textbooks, et cetera. And at that point it was like, okay, I can't really do it in my own money, but obviously there's student loans out there. So it was a pretty like heavy decision, I'd say. Um, you know, it was either like, okay, should I even finish school? Do I want to get these student loans? You obviously hear nightmares about it. But, you know, I was actually pretty ingrained in Clemson, very involved in uh, different clubs, organizations. I was like, you know what? Like, an education, I think, in my mind is worth it, especially at a program like this. Um, so I ended up at that point doing what I had to do. So. What did you graduate with? Uh, so I was business management and yeah. then entrepreneurship. Okay. So um, how 
at ten grand, it seems pretty reasonable. Now that you're a professional and you mm-hmm. have your setup um, in your job, does the ten grand debt weigh on you a lot, or is it pretty manageable for you? No, so I'd say the first year out, uh, you know, I was making uh, entry level salary. You know, nothing really too crazy. Um, but obviously, Charlotte is can be significantly expensive. Um, you know, just rent in general, going out to eat, everything adds up. So I, I'd say like the first six months when I was just making entry level, it was a little kind of some overbearing weight at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just like any other situation, I think you really have to look at it as, hey, you know, problems come all the time, but what am I going to do today? What am I going to do this hour? What am I going to do this minute to get me out of this? So did you try side hustles to Yeah, so back, so, back to mowing lawns? <laughs> no, you can't do yeah, that in, in downtown in Durham. In downtown, uh, Durham, <laughs> downtown Charlotte, right? Oh, uh, sorry. Sorry about that, Charlotte. Yeah, so I'd say side hustle-wise, I, uh, you know, I flipped a – a decent amount of things from college on eBay. Uh, actually, when I just first got up here, you know, carried coffee makers, sunglasses, a couple button downs that I didn't wear anymore, which I don't know why people would wear those because I wore them for about five years, but hope, hope they're enjoying it. So, uh, you know, obviously sold some things there. Um, and I think what really helped me out, which obviously I did this at a young age of putting my budget on paper. I think a big thing that helped me out right when I got up here was I made a amazing budget on Excel. Um, I really, you know, I spent a whole weekend, uh, cause at Clemson being a business management major, I took a couple of Excel classes. So basically I called my teachers and I, they're like, uh, didn't you graduate? I'm like, yeah. Uh, would, <laughs> would you mind hopping on a call? I'm actually trying to build out a budget on Excel. Like, can you look at it? I'm really trying to save. And they're like, Oh, of course. So, uh, some of my old professors actually helped me, uh, make a really nice budget. Um, and I say, but because of the budget and because of actually seeing where each dollar was going, it definitely took a lot of weight off my shoulders at the time. Just the knowledge in retrospect, did you take all of your expenditures and then categorize them in the past and then say, oh, this is what I'm spending now. I need to spend less here Mm. versus there. Yeah. So it's, I think with a budget, you know, it was the first month I like to call it the trial, the trial period. So you obviously have your fixed expenses, you know, rent, um, cable or internet if you go that route. And then you have your, you know, phone bill, um, car payment if you have that insurance. And then you have your variable expenses, which that can be a big slap in the face sometimes, especially when you first move because variable expenses for me, I have out to eat, you know, uh, groceries, utilities, because those can be variable um, I actually have my girlfriend in a separate category. So I know when we go out to eat what I'm spending on her, what I'm spending on myself. Um, and then just a couple other random variable expenses like miscellaneous, et cetera. And I think looking at the variable expenses, it's like, okay, in, you know, July I spent $160 on beer, wine, and alcohol. Do I really need to spend that or can I maybe scale that back to $90 and then end up saving the remainder amount? So. so this is this is really interesting and dovetails well with why we built weekly. So I yeah. want to dive one level deeper on this. So we built weekly so that it would take your recurring expenses and your recurring income, subtracts that out, gets your discretionary mm-hmm. spending amount, and then tries to abstract the categories, lets you sort of mindfully look at what you're spending in the moment, whether it's bringing you joy and whether you're enjoying it but always keeping you mindful on spending less than one number. That being said, with your categorization of spending, did you always do that in retrospect? So after the money was spent, I went and categorized it and then looked at it? Or did you manage the discretionary spending in the moment 
like here's $10 I'm going to spend at the restaurant. Let me look at my restaurant category and subtract it out and see if I have any money left in there. Mm. So you're asking if I had separate budgets for each category? Correct. Per se? Okay. And did you do, did you, were you mindful in the moment about which category money was coming out of or did you just, how did you manage that? Yeah, that's a good question. So for me, what I would do is I would backtrack it from a weekly savings goal. So let's say mm-hmm. for those out there, let's say your saving goal per week is $200 and you're making 600, right? So that means you can only spend $400 that week. Well, you break down just like weekly does. You can break down your rent into weekly. So let's say you have $800 a month in rent, break that down into 200, the rest of your fixed expenses. Then at the end of the day, you only have, you know, maybe $150 left in variable discretionary um, financials left to go out for the rest of the week. Right. Right. So I would look at that and then it would just be sacrifices at that point. Meaning if Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I had coworkers at the time that wanted to go out to lunch. Next thing I know, I just spent $50 in three days. That means when the weekend's coming up, I have to sacrifice maybe Friday night and Saturday afternoon lunch because I went out to lunch Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Right. So, so it sounds like you weren't looking necessarily at the category of expenses of the discretionary spending. You were just looking at, I know I only have this much left to spend. Is that correct? Is that true? Yep. And for the categories for myself, I just have them. I had them and I still have them on there just to know at the end of the month, I, I kind of do a, you know, just like any company does an audit. I kind of just audit myself and I'm yeah. like, okay, I spent X amount of dollars on out to eat. Could I maybe scale this back a little bit? Maybe I could add a little bit more to groceries and not have to buy frozen this or frozen that. So yeah. I kind of like it for myself to have a nice audit. Yeah. Cool. Um, so you're, on your own, mm-hmm. what are some tips and tricks that you've had, you have discovered in just spending or saving now that you're on your own? Yeah. So I think with spending, saving, et cetera, I think one thing with being wealthy is I think people hear that term and they're like, oh, a wealth wealthy equals a million dollars. In my opinion, I think wealthy equals being just financially stable, you know, yeah. if your car tire pops, being able to buy a $200 tire, not having to check your bank account while you're trying to pay for it at the cashier register. I think that is my definition of wealthy. And in saying that, I think for myself that some really tips I would say is, you know, establishing your mind that you have a desire to be wealthy. And when, again, when I say wealthy, it's meaning not being, you know, it's being financially stable for just common situations, right? So mm-hmm. I think first establish that in your mind. And, you know, I actually have written it down and said, I am wealthy. I, I write that down every day just because wealthy habits, right? Continue to have that. That's cool. And I think number two, and we were just touching on this prior, is like have a budget, whether it's uh, Excel, whether it's your app weekly, which I've been messing with this whole week. I really like it. Whether it's, um, you know, they're a monster now, but whether it's Mint or the other apps out there, you have to track your money or like I did when I was 12, you know, track, track it on a sheet of paper, just mm-hmm. do something to get your money on paper or on some app to really just know where it's going. Um, and number three, I would really say another tip I'd say is just really, I think checking in on your, on your finances, you know, checking in on just your bank accounts every now and then checking in on your stocks. If you have those, I mean, I, I asked someone the other day, they were asking me about their 401k, if they should transfer it to a Roth IRA, um, just in a casual conversation, I said, well, candidly, like how much do you have in your 401k? And they said, Oh, I don't, I don't know. I haven't checked it in three or four years. <laughs> and you know, I, I think a lot of people just kind of just 
put their money over there and just, you know, check back three or four years later. And like, oh, I, I guess it's there. Yeah. You know, so I think another thing is just constantly always checking. You know, I check my bank account. Even I don't spend anything. I check my, my all my bank accounts maybe two or three times a week just so I can continue to have awareness of everything. Yeah. Um, and I think another thing, too, is just in not only just with financial obligations and money and spending and saving, but I think in life, too, is always just being a continuous learning mindset. So for me, you know, I'm always looking at some online articles on uh, finance on like Forbes or CNBC. I'm really looking at, you know, what books out there can I learn from or, or listening to podcasts like this. I think with money, it's just like technology. It changes every single day, right? There's so many factors in it. So I think a big, I think something that's really helped me out is always having that kind of continuous learning mentality. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about buying stocks? Yeah. Are you at the point where you're looking at buying stocks or are you going to pay off your student loans first? Yeah, so I still uh, I still invest in stocks. Actually, um, shout out to my uncle if you're a listener to this. I don't know if you listen to podcasts or not. But anyway, uh, senior year of high school, uh, he introduced me to the stock market um, just from a brief conversation after graduation. Um, that was actually his graduation gift. He took me down to Scott trade at the time, uh-huh. uh, and, and helped me invest in the stock market. Yeah. What was the first thing you bought? If you don't mind sharing. Yeah. Uh, actually I still have some of this stock, uh, XL energy. Okay. Uh, they're kind of like the Duke energy of the Midwest. Okay. Uh, pretty good dividend yield on that. So yeah, my first stock was, uh, XL high, dividend energy. Yield, high yeah. dividend yield stock. I think it was like 20 something a share. Now it's about 60. So yeah. good return. Yeah. <laughs> And come to think of it, your story about the 401k, I can see, uh, uh, in general, I definitely agree with checking in on your money and all that. I personally do it on a quarterly basis. I write everything down, look at all the values and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, of my investment accounts, yada, yada. But I can I can also see the value of putting something in the 401k and almost forgetting that it's there because it does grow without you looking at it and you're not tempted to do anything with it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, for sidebar. Sure. That is a good thing with 401k, especially if, you know, I don't, I don't think you have to be, you know, very financially savvy to be wealthy. You know, just for me, I've I've always just loved the side of money, of learning stuff. I don't think you have to be at that level to be wealthy. I, I just think it is good to still check up on. And I, I think I that's the beauty, like you mentioned, of the 401k, though, you know, for those people who just want to make sure they're making money and, and still, you know, having wealth come in. I think a 401k is a good option because you don't have to check it all the time, like like the normal stock market sometimes. So Yeah. Um, so on our recent podcast with Dan and I, we talked about areas where spending money, more money in something that's providing you value can mm. be a net benefit. So, uh, for example, if you find that you need more rest, I'm just making this up on the top of my head right now, but spending your money on a mattress that gives you a restful sleep is an investment of something that's going to give you more energy make more money in the future. So instead of the mindset of I need to budget, everything I spend on is bad, mm. which makes people fail on budgeting. It's like some things are worth investing more money in. And I just need to discover what those are. Is there anything in your life that you've sent? You said, I need to spend more money here because it actually is a net benefit, even though it's costing me more in the short, short term. Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say for myself, um, and I and I definitely agree with that point you gave about, you know, if you're budgeting, you're spending, you're like, this is bad, this is bad. Um, I would say for myself, though, with my job that I have now and just all the networking events I go to, I'd say it's honestly the clothes I wear. Okay. Um, because my role, as you touched on prior uh, with Capital Analytics, uh, we create annual economic reports on major metro cities. 
Um, but we do that by interviewing 200 to 250 of the top CEOs, city officials, university presidents in the Charlotte market. Mm-hmm. So with that said, I have the opportunity to be in front of, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs, mayors of different cities every single day. Um, and within that, you know, these people obviously are very high up in their company. You know, they're, they're wearing some pretty nice suits. So I think showing up on mine, especially at such a young age, I think having, you know, a nicer shirt, a nicer suit, nicer shoes – really creates a, a good first impression, right? So yeah. that's something that I found a lot of value, which earlier when I first started the role, I was like, oh, I can just wear this, you know, $100 suit I got at Goodwill, but then I slowly started catching on, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I might need to spend a little bit more. <laughs> so Good one. Um, what are some other fun money stories that you uh, you've ha- you have? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, man, so at Clemson, I mean, just one of the other things I did to get money because – with Clemson, I mean, I was really involved in a lot of organizations at different clubs, business associations, or fraternities. So it was really hard for me to work uh, during school, which I, I ended up doing senior year. But earlier on, uh, before I started working during school, I started giving plasma. Oh, um, wow. Which you've heard good and bad things about that. <laughs> I, I don't know. what. Tell me about that. Yeah, so plasma, it's basically, I mean, I'm no scientist, but it's basically the protein molecules in your bloodstream and there's actually a ton of different organizations out there that will pay you for your plasma because it's such in high demand because they make a lot of bio um, biomedical equipment out of plasma. And this is different than donating blood. Yeah, so it's the plasma in your blood. Okay. Um, they pay more for. Oh. So now that I'm talking about this more. It sounds so sketchy, but it's hilarious. <laughs> um, is it different than donating no, blood? No, it's, it's basically the same thing. They just like, somehow through science extract, extract the plasma and then – does so, it leave you more drained than it does? It does. Oh, okay. So, so what was that like? So yeah, I would, I would donate the plasma. And I mean, it would actually be some good money because it's such in high demand. I mean, you do it four or five times a month, you're making three hundred fifty, four hundred dollars a month. Um, so it was a really good. I mean, in, in a way, a really good side gig. What are the risks? What are the but yeah, I think it was a funny story because so many people were making fun of me um, because of it at the time. They're like, "Oh, you're giving plasma? Like, you know, no offense to anyone out there, but isn't that only for people who you know?" are only making $7 an hour or, you know, the really low blue collar. And I'm like, man, I'm just trying to get all the money I can get. You know, I'm a broke college student. I don't want to be that. Uh-huh. Uh, so obviously given plasma was like a huge lesson on humility uh-huh. um, and a huge lesson on gratitude because, to be honest, obviously just like any other college kid, I was using that money so I could get to pay for, you know, not only some textbooks but also pay to go out to eat, pay to go to the bar every now and then, pay to take a girl out or my girlfriend now obviously out for a dinner. Um, but you know, you had people there that I, I had some crazy conversations with people. I said, Hey man, why are you here? And some people would literally be given plasma to pay for their, you know, their, their cable or pay for their daughter's textbooks in, in middle school. Um, and it was just a huge lesson on humility and gratitude yeah. that I was like, wow, like I'm over here complaining that I have to give plasma or need, want to give plasma so I can go out to eat or, or go, you know, have some drinks at the bar with my friends. And this person's given plasma to pay for their daughter's, you know, middle school textbooks. So huge, just not only money lesson of like kind of having to get scrappy, but also huge lesson on humility and gratitude. Fantastic story. Yeah. So speaking of lessons, if you pull, if you take a, going back to your family for a second, what do you think were the first lessons you learned about money in your family did that or maybe what were the first lessons you learned about money whether they came from your family or not where do you think you got those yeah so i think of a big lesson of what not to do is again just don't i, I think it's so easy to overspend in today's society right i mean you have look at the super bowl commercials they're 
begging you to spend money. Go on Instagram, trying to even for business, you're going on Instagram. People are begging you to spend their money. But where did you so learn I, not to overspend? Yeah, so I, I think just honestly growing up, I mean, either watching some family members overspend and what that did to them. Okay. You know, hearing conversations, you know, no way, shape, or form arguments, but just hearing conversations at an early age through different family members of like, you know, how are we going to pay for this? Or, you know, what are we going to do here? Or even just friends in general that were older than me. You know, I had some college friends at an early age just because I grew up surfing and skateboarding. So you have friends older, even hearing some college students like complaining about money. Uh I was like, man, there's something with this money thing. It it (laughs) doesn't sound too fun, but I feel like there's a way to make it kind of work for you more. So I think at an early age was like, okay, don't overspend, be frugal. And then I think another big one too was, was just really, you know, I was fortunate to adopt that mentality of, you know, it it takes what it takes, right? I had to get my first car. It wasn't going to be given to me. I I had to do what I had to do to get it. So I was able to fortunately have that mentality. And sometimes I think you have to have that uh, with money as well. You know, let's say you have, let's say you have rent coming up and you're just starting out working. You're not managing, you're not managing your money properly. It's so easy to put that rent on a credit card. Uh, But I think if you have that it takes what it takes mentality, then go out, buy some things at Goodwill, flip them on eBay, give plasma, do something so you're not having to just automatically get in debt like majority of Americans. Yeah. So. That's good advice. Um, so I'm interested to know, I really like what you said about wealth. Mm. I really like what you said about being able, I can't remember, I, I don't know how you phrased it exactly, but it was being able to afford common expenses easily. Yeah. Right. Um, do you, well, now that you're wealthy, right? Do you have new money goals or do having other money goals really kind of get in the way of happiness in some way? Yeah. So I think, uh, with money goals, um, another big lesson I got probably in college was just watching videos, reading books, articles was break down your financial goals into zero to six month increments, uh, six to two year, six months to two year increments, and then two to eight year increments. Because, you know, for example, I have a uh, goal by 30 years old to have a million dollar net worth. So okay. not a million dollars in assets, but a million dollar net worth, whether it's the real estate, et cetera, et cetera. So looking at well, that. If it was a real estate asset, that would still be an asset. Yeah, you but mean, not, not liquid assets. Liquid. Yes. Yeah, not liquid, sorry, not liquid dollar, um, not liquid million dollars, but just million dollar net worth from assets. Um, That's great. So, you know, looking at that now at 24 years old, I mean, that's a very steep goal, right? When did you make that goal? Uh, I made that goal, actually, I went on a hike about six months ago and made that goal. Okay, all right. (laughs) So I was hiking in Gastonia, North Carolina, and I was like, you know, I'm going to get serious about it and make some more financial goals. So Uh um, anyway, you look at that goal at 24, I mean, that's six years from now. It's like, okay, like, that's, that's a pretty pretty steep uh, mountain to climb mm-hmm. only being two years out of school. But I think if you break it down into increments, like I said, monthly, I think it compounds on each other. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, um, you know, I had a goal, uh, to have over $10,000 in the stock market, mm-hmm. uh, in six months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the first month that felt pretty, pretty hefty, but obviously once you start building on each other, once you get to month three, month four, it's like, okay, I think this is actually possible. And I think that, small example compounds on itself. You know, maybe when I'm 28, 29, I'm like, wow, I actually think I'm fairly close to this goal. I think I can get there and it provides much more momentum. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. And, I, and it, 
Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, I was yeah, actually going to ask you the happiness question or uh, respond to the happiness question. So I think money obviously is such a controversial topic of like, you know, does money provide happiness? Can you get happiness from money? You only care about money. But I think it, it's knowing when to like turn it off. For example, mm. you know, during the week, I'm very invested in doing podcasts. I'm very invested in work. I'm very invested in looking over my stocks. But, you know, you best believe that when my girlfriend and I are going to lunch or dinner on Saturday, I got my phone turned on airplane mode, not responding to any emails. I'm actually maintaining really good time with her, focusing on the present rather yeah. than, you know, sitting here at dinner, picking up my phone, checking an email. I'm actually engaged in that moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, I can see how so, that really helps. You got to know when to turn it on during the week, I think, is when you, you know, you go 120, 130 percent. But then I think during the weekend, um, you know, contingent on working on side hustles, et cetera. I think during the weekend when you're spending time with loved ones, loved ones and family is really when you go all in. And instead of depositing financials into your bank account, you deposit emotional time into that relationship. Yeah, for sure. So you're saying, if I'm hearing you right, your million dollar goal by 30 mean, is something that you strive for during your work hours. Yeah. And you're able to sort of keep your emotional social hours not, and not have it interfere with those mm-hmm. um, while you're on that that journey. Yeah, and I think I have, you know, this goal list that I printed out for this episode. I have it. Um, another key thing, too, is I have it uh, bulleted to my wall. Um, you know, I work from home, so I have it right above my desk. So it's obviously having a, a constant reminder and having that right in front of you, too. Can you so. read some more off of them? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, six months to two years, I'd like to have my own house. Uh, not paid off or anything, just I would like to have my own house, you know, to the four hundred to $500,000 range because um, right now I'm still living in an apartment. Um, and then I would say in two to eight years, I'd like to have uh, three rental properties. So actually, you know, that's where the million-dollar net worth comes that's to play, three properties in, that mm-hmm. are actually providing me, whether it's Airbnb or actual, you know, twelve or six to 12-month tenants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one, too, uh, I'd say is being able to put Dave Ramsey talks about this all the time, but I want to get my emergency fund back up to 6,000. Uh, speaking of Dave Ramsey, um, you're at a uh, good time in life to invest in a 401k or an IRA. You, mm. know, you know this already, but um, uh, I'll get the exact numbers wrong, but the gist of it is pretty right. Um, where if you can save money, like from your year, uh, let's say 21, to 28 and I and when I say save money I can't remember if the number is 5,000 a year or 10,000 a year maybe even 2,000 a year and then you stop and then that's person a so person a does that and then the other person starts and picks up at age 28 and goes all the way to 65 saving that same amount of money every year the person who saved from 20 to 28 or whatever the rough numbers are will have way more money than the other person who saved for way longer and it's the power of compounding interest and the money that is we're talking about here is in the millions yeah like just by saving whatever that number is five ten of two thousand five thousand or ten thousand a month a year in those early years you will have over a million dollars well over a million dollars when you retire and that's it yeah amazing yeah and that's and i think breaking it down like that makes it so much easier to grasp because a million dollars sounds like a hefty amount of money at, at a young age like this, right? So um, to your point there, I actually read that as well. I think it was if you start at 22, 23, which is the average age right out of school, mm-hmm. and then invest 
uh, I, I believe it's five, five or six grand a year um, at a normal S and P five hundred average return at nine or ten percent. Mm-hmm. Then I think it was like at fifty five or sixty, you'd have, I believe, it was one point five million dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so it won't be by thirty, but that's a real lesson. Yeah, because if you can do it, like you will have your long term self will be exactly will be will be set and it does and that's even if you turn it off at it which you're not going to yeah. you're probably going to go all the way through yeah ex- and i think i think too with that goal right it's i think your experience with your career uh compounds on each other so you know i've met some people that are 26 27 uh through some you know pretty decent jobs at some of the fortune 500s around here making 250 350 400 mm-hmm. and you know i think if you can get your skill set up to that level or you know, put yourself in the right opportunities to make, you know, even, even a hundred grand and, and actually are frugal with your spending up until your thir- like pretty frugal with your spending up until your thirties. I think that's a very achievable goal. Yeah. So, um, why don't we take a second and you talk about, um, your podcast. I'd like to hear more about that. What are some of the best lessons you've heard from your guests? And if you could describe the podcast for our audience. Yeah, definitely. That's a good question. So, the podcast that I run is Next Level Minds. It's a business entrepreneurial podcast where I really walk through people's stories of how they have gotten from point A to point B, overcame adversities along the way. So I know everyone likes to really broadcast their destination, but at the end of the day, you know, what did it really take to get there, right? So these are the stories that I like to unpack with founders, entrepreneurs, creators, executives, you know, whoever I'm sitting down with that just has a story of really getting from that point A to point B. And I think some really big lessons that I've learned along the way, and this is actually my first episode, um, a good friend, Mike, he said, you got to put the horse blinders on. And I said, what do you mean by that? He's like, think about it, man. You're scrolling on Instagram, you're scrolling on Facebook, Twitter, whatever. You're looking at kids that are out in California making, you know, a million dollars at 25. How do you think that's going to make you feel about your goal? And I was like, pretty dang bad. So he said, you know, when you're first starting out, even even when you're pretty far in life, you know, put the horse blinders on, focus on you, right? Focus on what you're doing that day, hour, minute, et cetera, and how are you getting to that next level, if you will. So I think that was a really big lesson and then I think another big lesson was with uh, Haley Mae Campbell. So she is a country music artist out of Nashville. Um, she grew up in Charleston, but she's actually blown up recently. I mean, she's got millions and millions of streams on Spotify. She's touring with all the big names. And one of her lessons was, you know, you have to believe and you have to just love your goal or love what you want in life so much that you really back yourself into a corner and basically force yourself to get it done. So for her example, she was like, yeah, how do you force? Yeah. So she was like, I always wanted to be a music artist. I always wanted to tour. I always wanted to do this. So she said she had never had a legit full-time job rather than, you know, breached at Starbucks, cashier, hair, cheater, stuff like that. And basically forced herself to have to go that route. So I think that's a little extreme. Uh, but I think that's true with, by not getting a more steady, by not getting it more, cause then you get comfortable, right? I think, and that's a lot of the things out there with entrepreneurs is like you hear people, and I think, you know, I think you still have to be safe with it, but you hear people, you know, selling their car or selling their house or to build their business. I don't think you have to go that far all the time, but I think you do have to make some really big sacrifices along the way to really get to that next level, whether it's with your finances, your career, your business. So can can you tell me about the gratitude journal that you mentioned? Oh yeah. So I actually started that process 
actually right when I moved to Charlotte, just because, you know, I'm blessed to live downtown, which is amazing, but at the same time, it gets very hectic of walking, people running into you, you know, it's, it's, it's not New York City, but it sometimes feels like a miniature mm-hmm. New York City, so I was like, man, I'm getting kind of overwhelmed here. I got to really find a way to just stay more grounded. So my gratitude journal is a journal that I write in every day. So I write in uh, one thing I'm thankful for, um, which it could be something small. I mean, today I was like, I wrote down, I'm, I'm very thankful that I was able to go to the gym before work and eat a bowl of oatmeal. Super simple, but uh-huh. a lot of people can't go to the gym because they're injured. A lot of people don't have money to eat breakfast. So breaking it down so much. And then after the gratitude journal, I write down just a power list where I actually got this from uh, another podcast called MF CEO Project by Andy Fursella. Um, he basically says, make a power list, five critical tasks that you're going to accomplish that day that are going to exponentially move the needle in your life forward, in your business, career, relationships, whatever you want to focus on at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so then you write down a power list. And honestly, I don't have my journal in front of me, so I'm not going to remember my power list from the day. Uh-huh. Uh, but one of them was be on this podcast, so there's at least one. That's cool. Uh, but yeah, write down the power list. And then at the end of the night, you know, end of the day, whether it's and, – and I'm big on personal development. It takes time. It obviously is an investment in yourself. So with that said, no matter what time it is, whether I'm done working at 11 p.m., 12 a.m., 1 a.m., or 6 p.m., I'm taking the time at the very end of the day, right before I go to sleep, to pull out the journal and write down, you know, one to three more things that I'm thankful for that happened that day. Okay. And then I always write down, tomorrow will be a great day as, like, my last line. Nice. Because, I mean, think about it. Just going to bed as the last thing you wrote down, the last thing you said to yourself, saying tomorrow is going to be a great day, you wake up just exponentially in such a better mood. Wow. Did you come up with that yourself? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of different podcasts of people doing journals, affirmations, and I kind of just made a custom-tailored uh, solution for myself. So I love it. Yeah. That's fantastic. So anything else I should have asked or any other story you'd like to tell about uh, yourself or money? Yeah, so... I think I'm big on, as I touched on, on a lesson I learned from Mike on my podcast, Next Level Minds, um, and I struggle with this too sometimes, is really try your best not to compare yourself to others. Mm. Because, for example, you know, I was stressing that, you know, I, I mean, I don't think I should be because it's not the most humble comment, but, you know, I'm like, oh, I wish I had six figures in the stock market right now. Obviously, I'm pretty far from that. Um, but, you know, the other day I was in a conversation at a networking event talking finance with this guy, we just started opening up and he's like, man, I'm super excited. I I just got my first 2000 in my savings account and he was 26 years old and hearing the excitement on his face, I think it's like, okay, like there's either, there's obviously hundreds of people, 10 times better position than I am, but there's probably a lot more that are worse off than I am at this situation. So I think looking at it as, you know, I'm blessed to be where I'm at, but I'm always trying to take it to that next level. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for this, Chris. I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, in- inviting me here to the podcasting room. We're here in downtown Charlotte, and yeah. um, I look forward to keeping in touch and, and listening to Next Level Minds, and we should touch base again. I'll be really interested to talk to you when you turn 30. <laughs> I'm going to say, how's it going on that million-dollar goal? I didn't make it. No, I like, <laughs> you yeah. may be way above it, you know. Uh, who knows? That's that's the crazy thing about life. You never know uh, what's going to happen. You know, I never would I thought two years ago in college that I would be in a job that I speak with 200 of the top CEOs in the Southeast. So I think just another kind of final learning lesson 
is you never know where you're going to be one, two, three, four, five years from now. Just honestly keep pushing towards the goal you have and obviously stay grounded in gratitude. So Yeah, for sure. I really love the way you define wealth. I think that's so important. It just feels good to, to define it in that way. And you say, you know what? Everything is fine now. I'll get to wherever I'm getting going to go next. Yeah. I'm good with where I'm at now. And I'm going to enjoy the journey to try to get to the next spot if I want to. Exactly. I, I feel like that's healthy. Yeah. Enjoy the spot you're at. Enjoy, you know, the journey along the way. And, and then again, just touching on my definition of wealth again, because I know you you like that piece, uh, was just wealth is being able to afford common expenditures that come up and obviously also wealth is having knowledge of your personal finances mm-hmm. yeah that's the other piece so yeah cool very cool yeah all well, right thanks man I, i've really enjoyed being on the show um everyone out there listen to next level minds if you have a chance episodes every other monday it's uh on apple spotify and uh is it the google play store as well yeah. so all right yeah. cool thanks man all right Well, that's it for this pod. I want to thank Chris Chapman for coming on and telling his story. If you want to find his podcast, you can search for Next Level Minds. Also, you can find him at Chris Chap Chap on Instagram. Also, thank you for listening. And if you like the podcast, please go and give it a a rating and a review. We'd really appreciate it. Um, It'll help other people find it. And we will see you next time. Happy budgeting. Since I've had that, and she's my type of girl, and everybody knows it.